If you would, please take a copy of your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 19. We're going to read Isaiah 19 and 20. Some of you might be saying, wait, don't we normally sing a song? Is it? Uh, we do. One, we're keeping you on your toes this morning. And uh, more than that, uh, we know that uh, sometimes communion Sunday, we run a little long in the services. So we moved a song to the call to worship, a couple things like that. Hopefully that explanation is enough time for you to find Isaiah chapter 19 and 20 in your Bibles. And of course, if you don't have one, we print the text, the scripture text in the uh, bulletin as well. Without further ado, hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, Isaiah chapter 19 and 20, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. And they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. And a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up. And the river will be dry and parched. And its canals will become foul. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament, all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish, who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zone, are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings. When there, Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zone have become fools and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion And they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of the host shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, 
and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed, because of Cush their hope, and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what happened to those in whom we hoped, and to whom we fled for help, to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing this morning as we consider it together. Let's pray. O God, our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, would you help us to understand your ways in times past, your ways in years to come, your ways now in this world in which we live. Help us to see our sin, our need, but also help us to see our great Savior. It's in Jesus' name we ask it all. Amen. What do you think of when you think of Egypt? A cheesy 80s song, or pyramids, or pharaohs, or the sphinx, maybe something else? Here's a better question for you. What did Israel think of in Isaiah's day when they thought of Egypt? I think it's at least two things. One, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First, they thought of Egypt as their enemy, their slave master, formerly. And second, probably thought of Egypt as their hope. Yes, their enemy and their hope. You see, at this time, Egypt was the only realistic power in the region that could stand up to Assyria, the ones everybody was afraid of all afraid of Assyria, including Israel, and they needed somebody to help fight against them. And so Egypt, yes, was Israel's enemy, but he was, he, they, was also Israel's hope. Israel was desperate. So where would she turn? To the covenant Lord who had sworn to protect his people, who longed to be gracious to them, who asked me, his people, to trust him even though I can't see him? Or would they turn to Egypt, with, with whom we have some bad history? But you know, she has chariots and swords and, and lots of them. How, how does that psalm go? Some trust in the Lord our God, but we trust in chariots and horses. All the things that our eyes can see and our hands can touch. Is that how Psalm 20 goes, or do I have it backwards this morning? Israel's hope is misplaced. 
Therefore, God is going to injure that hope, insult or embarrass that hope, so that God can ultimately heal that hope. Heal it, reorient it, and expand it to include the Gentiles, the other nations. That's some of what we see today. God adds insult to injury, and then he ultimately heals us. Let's see how that plays out. Three points today. First, you see injury. Injury in chapter 19, verses 1 through 15. Verse 1 starts out, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Best question to ask about any scripture is this. What does this tell me about God? And by extension, what does it tell me about my world and about myself? Well, what Isaiah 19, 1 to 15 tells you about your God is that God is about to lay the smackdown on Egypt. And why is that? Well, it doesn't really name Egypt's particular sins, which were commonly known, polytheism, idol worship, Pharaoh worship, the worship of wisdom and education. But you know, what if this is less about Egypt? What if God is talking to someone else? Egypt may have never heard these words. Like the rest of the oracles against foreign nations, this is intended for God's people, who at this time in history were all residing in this small has-been of a kingdom known as Israel, as some people might have thought of it. Israel had begun to think that Egypt was their their Obi-Wan Kenobi, their only hope. If you recall, God has worked his way through all the points on the compass to tell Israel that none of her neighbors, not from the north, the south, the east, or the west, none of her neighbors can save her, only God. But Israel still hasn't gotten the message. The nation is turning her lonely eyes to Egypt. But the sovereign Lord comes in verse 1 and he says, I'm coming. And even Egypt's idols will tremble, even though, of course, idols don't have emotions like fear. That's kind of the point. Idols don't have emotions or feelings or anything. They can't do anything. And this is who Israel is trusting in. A nation who worships deaf, dumb, mute, motionless, emotionless idols. So what is God going to do? to the object of Israel's false hope. Well, he's going to divide them. Verse 2, I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And that division will lead to defeat. Skip to verse 4, and I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And of course, in between, it mentions in verse 3, there will be confusion. The spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel, and they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. They'll inquire, but the implication is they won't find out much. There's, of course, more confusion in verses 11 through 15. But the next thing you see, you see destruction of their physical and economic resources in verses 5 through 10. 
Derek Kidner says, every asset of Egypt is seen to fail. Every asset, including her wisdom, which has turned to foolishness, stupidity, delusion in verses 11 through 15, including her river. Why is the river, why is the Nile so important? Well, throughout history, rivers and other water sources have always been centers of civilization. And one commentator points out how true that was for Egypt. He says the Nile was Egypt's lifeline. If it was cut off, as God promises in verses 5 and following, then all economic life would be cut off. The fishermen, mentioned I believe in verse 8, would be up a creek with no paddle. The other industries would suffer as well, verses 9 and 10 say. Derek Thomas sums it up like this. The Nile is stopped up, causing drought, starvation, industrial decline, and economic recession. When a society is suffering God's wrath, he says these are the symptoms to look out for. In other words, notice he mentions God's wrath there. This is not just an economic downturn. Not he is in Isaiah. He is in the quote I just read. If I confused a few of you. What is he saying though? He's saying that God is doing this. God is doing this. Now we have some idea why in this passage. If God does similar things today, we may not know the specific reason all the time, but there's a recent cartoon in the Gazette. Someone handed it to me, and it said essentially if cataclysmic things like this are happening, we can be sure God is behind it. God is trying to get our attention. God wants us to seek him in times of calamity and upheaval. That's what he was essentially saying to Israel. God wanted them to trust him. God wanted them to trust him, and they wanted to trust anything, anyone else, anyone with big enough muscles who would promise to save them, anyone they could see so that they didn't have to trust what they couldn't see, so that they didn't have to walk by faith in God. And God's response to Israel is basically to say, okay, fine, want to trust Egypt? Let's see how that works out. Because this is what's going to happen to Egypt, their society, their religion, their economy, their wisdom, their leaders. They'll all fail. It will be injured. It will be struck down. Civil war, stupidity, foreign rulers invading, full economic breakdown. That's what's coming. That's what to expect. As if he says, is this what you really want? Do you think they can solve all of your problems when they can't even solve their own. You know, two weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 18. I said then, sometimes God is aloof. Sometimes it looks like God isn't doing anything. Now, of course, He is. He always is. But sometimes God quietly waits for our idols, our objects of hope, to disappoint us. It's not quite what happens here, waiting Quietly, sometimes God comes and he smashes our idols. Egypt in her military might, her wisdom, her riches, all that, they had become Israel's idol, the idol of God's people. Are you trusting in a foreign nation? Maybe not, but what is your trust in? What is the thing that you think will make life okay? 
when this trial and temptation and hard period of life ends, when, when I finally get this toy, this accomplishment, this promotion, this much money in my retirement account, when he or she finally notices me, what is it? Because I, I don't know if God will quietly let that idol disappoint you, like Isaiah 18, or whether he will come and smash it. Maybe he is smashing it right now. But either way, God wants you to look to him more than he wants you to look to that idol. It's a hard reminder that we often need. Sometimes God injures the objects of our hope so that we can find more lasting hope in him. That's our first point. And the second point, you might say God adds insult to injury. Our second point, injury. Injury in chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Am I getting too cute with my points? Injury, insult, well, as long as it helps you learn the flow of the passage, the point of the passage. But, see, Israel was a slow learner. She didn't always get it. And if you skip ahead to chapter 20, it's a short chapter, you see an example of God reinforcing his message with shocking methods. Chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. We start by saying... I am glad, and so are you, that I do not have the same calling as the prophet Isaiah. We also say, Isaiah may not have been fully naked. The Hebrew language might indicate a loincloth, still pretty embarrassing. And he may have appeared like this once a day for three years. That might be what verse 3 is pointing to. Let me also say there's, there's confusing historical background for this oracle. Here is my best explanation. Ashdod, who is mentioned here, that's in Philistia, the Philistines, they rebelled against Assyria, the big bad guy in the region. And once Ashdod's king, his army was struck down, it mentions this in verse 1, this part it doesn't mention. He apparently fled to Egypt, and Egypt handed him over to the king of Sargon of Syria, instead of helping him out in the end, great savior that Egypt was. Now, while all this is going on, Isaiah apparently made at least a daily stroll through the town square, barefoot and naked, without explanation at first, for three years, according to verse 3. He was a prophet, so most people probably assumed Isaiah was sending a message, but what was the message? Hard to know unless you ask. You know, sometimes we assume we know what someone means by something. Sometimes we assume wrong. Just think about that. That might be helpful this day and age when there's a lot of confusion about any number of motivations of, of people. But as Israel is watching the Ashdod Assyria thing playing out on the news, they probably assumed Isaiah was saying the king of Ashdod is going to be humiliated. The same way that Isaiah is humiliating himself as God's servant you see, that's the natural assumption. Ashdod was Smallville. Assyria was Metropolis. Everyone assumed Ashdod would be defeated. So why is Isaiah making such a big fuss? Thank you, Captain Obvious. What they must have thought. But the end of three years, God spoke through the naked 
barefoot prophet. And he clarified some things. <clears throat> Chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign important against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives in the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Oh, wait a minute. This is talking about Egypt in Cush? Might have been what God's people said after three years of this reminder. Aren't Egypt and Cush, aren't they the big bullies, the ones that we were going to trust to fight off the other big bully, Assyria? Not going to work out that way. You see, God had warned them, his people, and now he's warning them again. And by the way, all it came to pass a few years later, Assyria came and they wiped out Egypt. God said it several times before, trust God, don't trust in Egypt. If you do, you'll be humiliated. Insult will be added to injury. You'll be ashamed that you ever trusted in someone so pathetic. If you think those are strong words, just listen to the way Isaiah says it. Verse 5, <clears throat> then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Notice a few things. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and of Egypt, their boast. Cush and Egypt are basically one entity at this time. We said that a few weeks ago. But these words aren't directed towards them. The audience is, is they, their hope, their boast. It's talking about God's people. The ones who had hoped in this mighty power. Who has now been totally humiliated. I say God's people, it says in verse 6, the inhabitants of this coastland, both Philistia and Egypt, were both right up along the sea. It's probably lumping them together. They're now humiliated because the one they hoped in was humiliated. What is God doing? God is underlining his point. I mean that more figuratively than literally. God has already said, don't trust foreign nations. Don't trust Egypt or Cush. Trust me. God's already said that. But they didn't listen. And you know, back when they wrote the scriptures on papyrus, it wasn't so easy just to use bold print and underlining to make your point. So sometimes God repeats things. You see that plenty of places in scripture. And then sometimes he uses shock value, like a naked prophet, to say that one day the nation you trust is going to be just like this, naked, barefoot, humiliated. Would that be enough to get their attention? That phrase, underlining his point, it's, it's one we use in my house. comes from a scene in a certain TV show, if you'll humor me. Donna, in this TV show, is trying to convince her boss to do something. And so she gives him one or two reasons. And he says, okay. And he's, he's obviously ready to move on to the next conversation. And she keeps trying to convince him. So he says, okay, again, slightly irritated this time. She keeps talking. And he interrupts and says, I said yes, like five minutes ago. She responds, I'm just underlining my point. <laughs> it's as if she's saying, I'm just making sure you heard me. Here's my question to you. 
How is God speaking to you right now? And by extension, how well are you paying attention? In other words, Isaiah 18, a couple chapters ago, God says at that point, I'm going to sit quietly and let your idols disappoint you. You know, sometimes that's enough. Sometimes the apparent silence of God is enough to get our attention, to draw us to him. Isaiah 19, he doesn't sit quietly. Rides on the cloud. He smashes the idol to smithereens. Sometimes God has to speak to me like that. Sometimes it takes more drama, more volume, more than a nudge. Does he ever have to talk to you like that? Is he talking to you like that right now? And then in Isaiah 20, God underlines his point. He uses a showstopper, something you can't miss, a naked prophet, an audible voice from that prophet. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not suggesting God is going to send a naked prophet to get your attention. That's not it. I am saying, does God have to speak that loudly, that shockingly, in order to get your attention? Because he will if he has to. But wouldn't it be better if we listened to his warning before it ever reached that point? If we sought out his wisdom, his guidance, his word, before we got off track. If God has to, he'll use shock value tactics, naked prophets, personal embarrassment, adding insult to injury, excuse me, adding, yes, that's the way it goes, adding insult to injury. He will if he has to. And in one sense, he always does this. Again, he doesn't always send naked prophets. But God's end goal is always to bring us where chapter 20, verse 6 ends, and we, how shall we escape? Think about the rest of Scripture in Corinthians. Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? In the Gospels, Peter says to Jesus, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. God always wants to bring us to the end of ourselves to a place of desperation. and Because when he has done that, then he's ready to build us back up, ready to heal us, ready to build us back up. And that leads to our final point. After injury and insult, then we're ready for God's infirmary. Our third point, infirmary, striking and healing. Go back to chapter 19, verses 16 through 25. Yes, the third point, it takes us back to the middle of the passage. That just seemed to make sense. Done that a few times recently. Isaiah can be weird and glorious all at the same time. But speaking of glorious, Isaiah seems to point us in chapter 19, 16 to 25. He seems to point us to a future day, a glorious day. In that day, he says, there's five paragraphs in most Bibles, all starting with in that day. There's there's another in that day reference in the middle of verse 21 as well. But what will that day be like? Well, at first, he says it'll be a day of fear. Verse 16, in that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. He says they'll react like scared women in danger. He's using a common stereotype from 2,700 years ago, whether or not that stereotype was kind or not, his audience would have understood it back then. But the point is that God's people will not be afraid of 
their enemies anymore. Now their enemies will fear them. That's reinforced in verse 17. And after this fear, their enemies will submit to them, to God's people. Verse 18, in that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. Five cities indicating a small number in a whole nation, including this city of destruction. The word for destruction sounds like Ra, the sun god of Egypt. Egypt's false gods, their hopes will be destroyed is probably the implication there. And a small part of Egypt, it also says, will begin to speak the same language and worship the same God as Israel, the true God. And then the the biggest section that comes next says, after this submission to Israel, to Israel's God, there will come a healing, a unique healing. Let's read all this together, 19 to 22. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them, working through that piece by piece. There's going to be an altar at the border of Egypt and Israel, like the altar at the Jordan in Joshua's day, which signified unity between eastern Israel and the rest of Israel. Israel's enemy, Egypt, is now her ally, her friend, is the import of that. A member of the same church, if you will, worshiping Israel's God despite all their differences, all their history. God alone can heal historic enmity, bitterness such as this. And in that day, it will happen. In that day, the day we all long for, the day when sin and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more, in that day it will happen. And so we should all be praying for that day to come. Your kingdom come, as we say. Or elsewhere in Scripture, it says, Maranatha, our Lord, come. Then, it says, Egypt will cry out for a savior, a a deliverer, just like Israel once did in the days of the judges when they didn't deserve a savior. But God saved them anyway. Someone once said in another context, deserves got nothing to do with it. Didn't deserve it, but God was gracious anyway. All this leads, verse 21, Egypt is worshiping the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant Lord all caps in most Bibles, who made promises to Israel, including the promise to their forefather Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You see that coming to bear. Verse 22, the Lord, it says, will strike Egypt. He struck them once already, didn't he? He will strike Egypt, but not to punish. He will strike Egypt, striking and healing, a weird turn a phrase, and they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. They'll return. How can they return to what they never were before? Because it's what they were always intended to be. Egypt, any nation, any people, 
are all created in God's image, children of Adam, children of Eden. And so like Egypt, when God strikes down the things we love, the things we hope in, it should be an implied call to return to him, to repent, to turn from sin, false idols, false objects of hope, and turn to God, the only sure and lasting hope. The passage moves on in verse 23. It mentions worship once again. Egypt is worshiping alongside Assyria. They're also freely moving back and forth to each other's countries on this highway. Two more enemies now becoming allies and friends. And then in verses 24 and 25, you see Egypt, Assyria grafted in with the people of God. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. Verse 25, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. One day, Egypt, Assyria, they'll be known as God's people. How unthinkable that would have been to them in this day. And now, maybe not all of Egypt, maybe not all of any nation. As Romans says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That applies to other nations as well. But God's people will not be limited to one nation. Praise the Lord for that. And even nations that were once at enmity with one another will be brought together. One author says, true religion heals wounds between people. He also says the day that Egypt and Assyria are at peace with one another and with Israel will be the day the whole world is at peace. You know, in in some ways, we need the Bible to understand our world, its brokenness, its continual conflict. But we also need the Bible to transcend our world, to, to lift us up out of the muck and mire of daily life. We need to know that it won't always be like this. See, Israel at this time was beaten down and scared. They were turning every which way for help to Egypt, to Assyria, to anyone who promised to help. And yes, God needed to tell them in one sense, trust me, trust me when life is crazy and it all seems hopeless. God also needed to say, One day, these conflicts won't exist. One day, all the idols will pass away. One day, all the conflict will pass away. You can trust me because one day, I will heal everything that is broken around you and everything that is broken in you. You can trust me. One day, you will not need to worry about whether Egypt or Assyria is your enemy or your would-be savior because I will defeat all your enemies, all of my enemies. I will be your savior. One day you will say without shame or regret, how could I have ever trusted anything else, anyone else? What we see in this sweeping passage is that the God who strikes us, metaphorically, who allows us to go through many dangers, toils, and snares, is the God who heals us in the end. Because none of the other things we trust can fulfill these kind of grand promises that God gives us. No one is playing the long game like our good and gracious God. 
See, we sometimes get so wrapped up in today, we rush this way and that to quench our thirst, to scratch this itch of restlessness. We rejoice in a momentary delight and hope only to weep and wail when it fades away. And little do we realize, God is the one making those lesser hopes fade away. He is striking us, dashing our misplaced hopes, striking, even smashing our idols so that we might say, how shall we escape? Where can we go? He is striking so that he might heal us, so that he might heal his children from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Does God sometimes add insult to injury? Sometimes, but he's always ready to heal the injured, always ready to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort the afflicted, to afflict the comfortable. May he comfort us in our affliction. Let us pray. God, you're good and what you do is good. Father, we pray that you would give us insight that we might be able to see and understand this truth that you want us to see. Father, even if we don't know every detail and nuance of geography and history, Father, may we see your good and gracious character shine through. May we see that when you strike us, it is ultimately to heal us and that you want our good in the end. God, help us to know that. Help us to taste and see that you are good. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.